Hey friends, this episode of the Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy! Welcome to another episode of the Fellow on Call, the Hemong Podcast. We're coming at you from Rillo University Medical Center. I'm Ronuk. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And in today's episode, we continue on our journey talking all about hemolytic anemias, this time getting to warm autoimmune hemolytic anemia, the thing that scares a lot of people when these patients come to the hospital. And it should. This is a scary condition. (laughs) And in contrast to our last episode, which were inherited or congenital, these are more acquired hemolytic anemias, right? And certainly can be really serious when they start up. Yeah, I'm excited to get into this one. This is super high yield. Remember that it's okay to transfuse incompatible blood products if you have a panagglutinin from warm autoimmune hemolytic anemia. All of this will make sense here in a second. Remember that. Don't just not give the patient blood. That's that's not a good idea. Good foreshadowing. All right. Well, without further ado, let's roll that show. In the last episode, we had discussed what our Christmas activities were. We had also discussed what our New Year's resolutions for this year were. Vivek looked at me funny because I said I was going to do more mobility integration into my daily activities, which led to a subsequent conversation offline. I I educated on what that really meant. So he's good now. He gets it. I I don't. I don't well, get it. I mean, he doesn't he doesn't get why I do it, but he understands the concept of it. At least I think so. And and so I I wanted to, you know, take a moment and like have y'all reflect on the past year though. Aside from resolutions whether you met them or not, what are you most proud of looking back? Yeah, you know, I think for me it's definitely well, I had such a minimal role in making this happen, but I think the the wedding went off well. I'm I'm really happy about that. My parents, our wedding planner Logan, they were all instrumental in making that actually happen. Again, I had a a minority stake or minority role in 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 planning this thing, but definitely really happy with how everything turned out. I think this is a tough question to answer. You know, I would say for myself, what I'm most proud about of, of over this past year is that you know, starting off as an as an attending, I think I slotted in nicely, and I didn't overburden myself. I know it's easy to burn yourself out and get too much stuff on your plate. I started that way, but I offloaded it and my life's so much better. So I'm, I'm happy that I started to learn how to say no. And I'm going to say that I'm probably most proud of. You thought of this question, man, you, you yeah, put a hard question a, up. Why did I ask this question? <laughs> I think the thing that I'm most proud of is I, I really think I got a lot more efficient in the kitchen. This was something that you guys may recall has been problematic. Everything from knife accidents to, you know, just putting in too much milk or cheese or flour, like just messing up ingredients left and right. I was very, very inefficient. And I think I've gotten a whole lot better in the past year. And I think it was just coming with uh, embracing the fact that I wasn't good at it, continuing to to work on it. And I feel a lot more comfortable doing all that stuff now. So I'm certainly proud and I hope that I can keep that going. Ronick, we're proud of you. We're proud of you, man. That, that, that's a big deal. And, and, you know, we need to work on you salting your foods. I think that's the next step for Ronick, the mystery man in the kitchen. Yeah, get that diamond crystal kosher salt. It's a bigger margin for air. It's not sponsored, but we wish we were. Yeah, we do. We do. We'll we'll tag them in the social medias when we we upload this episode. Guys, I wanted to 
continue this awesome discussion that we've been having on hemolytic anemias. And we cover the ins and outs of a lot of the major congenital hemolytic anemias. And this time, it's time to move on to the acquired hemolytic anemias. And I think a first place to start, a great place to start, is with warm autoimmune hemolytic anemia that a lot of people may be familiar with. It still scares a lot of people. And everyone may not truly understand, even if they've heard the term, of what this really entails. So let's start here. Vivek, do you want to kick us off with a case? Yeah, so we got a 55-year-old male with history of rye stage 1 CLL, foreshadowing to our upcoming series, and hypertension, who presents with a five-day history of progressive fatigue, dyspnea, and pallor. He's not really paid much attention to his urine recently. I mean, who does that? And isn't sure if it's been darker than usual. We always ask that, and I don't know why we ask patients this question. Is it really that relevant? But anyway, whatever. And isn't sure and hasn't had any new constitutional symptoms, no left upper quadrant pain that would be concerning for splenomegaly, and hasn't seen any bleeding anywhere. So what would your initial workup include? I'll throw this one to Dan. So based on just the presenting complaint alone, I think we were all thinking about symptomatic anemia, right? The guy is getting more pale and feeling short of breath and all that. So the first step in working this up is just confirm that's the case. Get a CBC. And while we're at it, we'll throw in a CMP as well. And because, again, we're suspicious for anemia, let's get a reticulocyte count. So that can be our, our start point. That's critically to do to throw that reticulocyte count on if you have this concern. It's very helpful, right? If it's lower and suppressed, I mean, sure, that's not as helpful. But in hemolytic anemia, it's going to be high regardless. You, you would see this being elevated. It's sort of a, of a binary high or not high, you know, and, and there are more nuances to that. But I think that's a simple way to think about it. So these labs come back and the CBC shows the following. White count of 132,000. This patient's baseline is 120s to 140s, so close to his baseline. He's been stable, asymptomatic, so that's why he hasn't been treated for a CLL. But now his hemoglobin is 5.6, and his platelets are 193. The reticulocytes are elevated, totaling 15% of his red blood cells. So again, I think about this as high or not high, so it's high. So that makes me think there's a lot of cell turnover going on, not just a suppressed bone marrow state. The bilirubin is elevated as well, and the AST and ALT are within normal limits. So what do you guys make of these labs? So this is obviously very concerning, and I was already worried about blood loss when we started with this patient's whole story, his anemia symptoms, it's sort of, they sort of crept on him somewhat acutely, and I'm convinced that he's losing blood somewhere, and his reticulocyte fraction shows that his marrow is perfectly capable of making more red blood cells. So again, supporting the idea that those cells are going somewhere. A new anemia of this severity definitely warrants a trip to the ED. And while he's headed there, we should probably ask him some more questions on our history to figure out what, what's going on. And recall in the first episode that we started this series with, we went through a lot of these questions. Um, but remember, the most common cause of acute anemia is going to be bleeding. And so first, let's remember to ask him those bleeding questions. For instance, is he on any blood thinners? Has he been taking any NSAIDs, either prescribed or over-the-counter? And if so, maybe he's using more than he than he's prescribed or, or, or should. Has he had any recent trauma, any black or tarry stools? And 
folks may not always recognize that darkening of stool is a sign of, of potential bleeding, so it's just good to inquire about this. You want to know, have they had any unusual bruising around the flanks, the abdomen, the thighs? We talked about those retroperitoneal areas as being places where a lot of blood can hide, and those can really be areas that can tip us off that bleeding is happening. And similarly, we can always ask about new aches and pains, again, suggesting that perhaps he's bleeding into a small area. Now, if all of these questions are not indicative of a likely culprit of bleeding, then of course you're going to entertain this idea of hemolysis. And so, you know, based on the questions that we asked this patient, you know, it didn't sound like he was having any active blood loss from anywhere. And he sort of just, again, reiterated that he hasn't been feeling too well. And then we have the labs that sort of support this hemolysis-like picture. So where do we go from here? Yeah, and so super important to think about a thorough exam, like you mentioned, and always preserving dignity and respecting a patient's modesty, we do have to expose skin to see is there bruising anywhere. And the ED did a really thorough exam here. And they didn't see any bruising on the abdomen, the thorax, the extremities. The patient hasn't started any new medications that could thin his blood or cause ulcers or anything like that, and has not had any recent trauma, just kind of hanging out on the couch for the holidays. The lab work came back with an LDH of 1,254, so pretty darn high. That haptoglobin was undetectable. And we did have a, a positive DAT. It's positive for IgG, negative for C3. With all this information together, we're concerned that this guy may have warm autoimmune hemolytic anemia. And so what would we be looking for on a peripheral smear? Are you guys going to be looking for bite cells, schistocytes? What are you looking for? Yeah, that's a good question. And and remember, we talked about spherocytes in hereditary spherocytosis, but you also get spherocytes in warm autoimmune hemolytic anemia. Part of the reason for this is that your spleen is removing parts of the red blood cell and it kind of reshapes itself into the spherical form. And you have this spherocyte picture. So you have a bunch of spherocytes that are floating around in the bloodstream. One key piece to this story, everything points and smells to hemolytic anemia, including that DAT. Remember the elution screen. So DAT is saying, do I have antibody present on the red blood cell surface? The elution screen is saying, are the antibodies binding to test red blood cells? And you can have something called a panagglutinin, meaning it's binding to every test red blood cell we, we, we expose the patient's serum to, that this patient's autoantibody is agglutinating and binding to all types of red blood cells. And that is the most common picture called a panagglutinin for warm autoimmune hemolytic anemia. So, you know, for this patient, we got to look at those things. We did that. And this patient did have this panagglutinin. So we are concerned for this warm autoimmune hemolytic anemia in his case. The other thing on the peripheral smear is that schistocytes would be unusual for a case of warm autoimmune hemolytic anemia. This isn't shearing of the red blood cells, creating fragments, right? That's not a mechanical shearing issue due to small plots in the vasculature or due to an external device or something like that. This is the fact that it's antibody-mediated. So those are important things on the peripheral smear. The other thing that's really important is that in brisk hemolytic anemia, so this patient, elution screen positive, panagglutinin, it all fits, they're prothrombotic. You want to make sure you put this patient on DVT prophylaxis. Really important. If you have asymmetric swelling in, a, in an extremity, it's really important to you know, think about looking for a DVT. But again, you don't have to get four extremity dopplers on everybody. Doing an exam is important. Knowing it's a prothrombotic state is important. It's very common for hematologists to recommend a four extremity doppler in all of these patients. 
But again, there, these are guidelines. You have to use your clinical judgment. There's no right answer to that. It's very reasonable to go one way or another. So the e- emergency department now calls us and asks an important question. Is it safe to provide a blood transfusion? This patient has a, has a panagglutinin. The blood bank is saying, hey, we can't find a compatible unit of blood. How do we deal with this situation? We get that question a lot. And it's it's a reasonable question, right? Like on our antibody screen, our cross-matching tests, we need to be able to like prove that a patient is going to be compatible with the unit of blood. But I guess the way that I think about it is that patients who are experiencing warm autoimmune hemolytic anemia are essentially incompatible with their own blood. So you're not necessarily going to be able to find like a proven compatible unit. And it can even make determining the patient's blood type a little challenging. So you know, despite all of that, when a patient is rapidly losing blood to hemolysis, transfusions are often life-saving interventions. And so it is still possible and indeed necessary much of the time to transfuse a patient with a, a warm autoantibody, with, with a panagglutinin. And so in some cases you may need to start with just giving trauma blood. And so that's non-cross-matched O positive or negative units that are transfused in an emergency setting as, as like a life-saving intervention. And it's also really important to connect with the blood bank as soon as you're starting to worry about a patient having a warm autoimmune hemolytic anemia, just to give them a heads up, let them start making preparations for the hard work they're going to have to do to try and find the safest units to transfuse for these patients. That way you can continue to support them as you work up the underlying cause for their hemolysis. And the key point there is that you don't have to transfuse the patient unless they're symptomatic, right? And, and it depends on how brisk their hemolysis is and all these other factors. But that symptomatic patient, look, if you don't give them the unit of blood, they're going to die of an MI, right? You don't want to do that. You don't want them to get a stroke because their hemoglobin is so low. So you transfuse those patients who are symptomatic, knowing that, hey, part of the blood you're going to give them is going to hemolyze, but we're not really concerned about this hyperhemolytic crisis that can happen in things like sickle cell disease, these rare events happening. When you think about risk benefit, it's worth it to do that with with direction from your blood bank colleagues. So another question we get a lot for these patients is, is what triggered this, right? There, there's sometimes an underlying autoimmune process. So Reno, can you comment a little bit on that? And then at the end, I'll comment a little bit about the CLL. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think in a lot of these cases, there is going to be some sort of underlying problem that's driving this whole process. And in many cases, this is a, a you know, a dysregulation of B cell function and production of one of these anti-red blood cell antigen autoantibodies. And, you know, Vivek probably is well aware of this, as are all of our astute listeners, that we can see this in cases of patients with things like CLL or Hodgkin's lymphoma because of the production of antibodies that can be associated with these diseases. And then also other autoimmune disorders like ALPS or lupus can also be situations where we can see um, a patient with warm autoimmune hemolytic anemia. So in general, in these patients, in addition to providing supportive care and some form of acute intensive immune suppression, it's important that we optimized treatment of that underlying disorder to provide long-term remission. So we don't want to just stick a bandage on the situation. We want to make sure that we're temporizing the patient in that situation. Remember those ABCs that we learned about. And then after that, though, we do want to address the underlying cause. Vivek, can you comment on the fact that, especially in our world, we do see this in association with certain types of lymphomas and things? Yeah. You know, and I think this is the key point for CLL. 
you can just treat the underlying hemolytic anemia, and we'll talk about rituximab and steroids. And if you had a CLL clone, I would always recommend to add rituximab to that regimen to depress the clone that you have. It doesn't mean that you need to put them on any more intensive therapy than that. The indication for therapy in CLL is if you have relapsed autoimmune hemolytic anemia problems after initial treatment. In other B-cell malignancies, like another B-cell lymphoma, you'd probably just want to treat the lymphoma at that point, right? Because this lymphoma is causing a symptomatic presentation. But CLL is one of those things that you try initial treatment, and then if that works, you're good. If it comes back despite that initial treatment, then that's when you might think about putting them on longer-term disease control for their underlying malignancy. Got it. And we're going to get into so much more about CLL in the weeks to come. So listeners, if you didn't quite catch that or didn't quite understand that, don't worry. This will come up again. But we wanted to lay the groundwork for those conversations with the one that we're having today. So, you know, because we talk about CLL some more later, let's sort of change the case just a little bit. Let's say that this patient was otherwise fairly healthy and presented with concerns for warm autoimmune hemolytic anemia that somewhat came out of the blue. And so if that was the case, how would we go about treating this patient in order to stop their body from breaking down red blood cells? There's a little bit of provider to provider variability in terms of the exact regimen that's going to be employed here. But generally speaking, we use a combination of rituximab and steroids to try and suppress that abnormal B-cell activity. So rituximab, remember, it's that anti-CD20 antibody that kills B-cells, sort of a targeted agent that kills B-cells. And along with that, I like to use a high-dose prednisone, so something like a, a milligram per kilogram per day. And uh, as far as rituximab, we give it in four weekly doses, just inspired by the, its use in lymphomas and other sort of lymphoproliferative issues, and typically at a dose of 375 milligrams per meter squared. There has been some research looking into using a fixed dose, slow dose rituximab, something like 100 milligrams per dose for that same weekly four-dose regimen. But I usually do stick with the 375 per meter squared just because that low-dose regimen isn't quite as well studied. And oftentimes these conditions can be really tricky to treat and, and can come back. So I, I want to give the best possible chance of, of kind of knocking this down. When you're given rituximab, remember it's important to make sure that you do that hepatitis B testing first and make sure that you don't need to start them on concurrent suppressive therapy for a latent viral infection. And you also want to make sure that a patient has all the tools they're going to need to keep making blood as they recover from this hemolytic episode. So I have a pretty low threshold to provide supplemental folic acid and vitamin B12 just to make sure they have what they need. And so this patient, you know, we, we're starting them on high doses of prednisone. Don't, don't forget about PJP prophylaxis. They're going to be on steroids for quite some time. We'll talk about that. But Ronak, how are you monitoring this patient in the acute setting? So depending on the severity of their hemolysis, and remember in the beginning, this is why Dan had suggested that we check CBC so frequently, because that gives us sort of an understanding of how brisk their hemolysis is. So in the beginning, you would definitely want to check some more, but thereafter, once it seems like things may be slowing down, we usually like to switch to daily or every 12 hours, depending on you know the degree of hemolysis. 
In addition, you want to check daily reticulocyte counts, LDH, and bilirubin. And what the hope is, is that these other values are going to also start to trend towards becoming normal, which will be an indication that perhaps their underlying hemolysis has slowed down. I'm personally not a huge fan of trending haptoglobins. I think haptoglobins are really supportive in that acute setting when you're trying to understand if someone could be bleeding. It's a good screening test. But remember that very small amounts of hemolysis actually need to take place for a haptoglobin to be low. And so it's not really that helpful as a, as a marker to keep on trending. So what you're looking to see is that the hemoglobin stabilizes, or at least the rate of the decline in the hemoglobin decreasing has slowed down. I have gotten to work with, with Dan on consults before. Something that he loves to do that I've been trying to do more is graphing the hemoglobin. And EHR typically does allow you to do that. And even just take a screenshot and put it into your note. It just is a nice visual representation to show improvements in a lot of values. And then also incorporating things like the LDH, bilirubin, and reticulocyte count can further support this. And, you know, quite frankly, in my experience, sometimes you start to see these levels normalizing even before the hemoglobin normalizes, and so that is why they are great surrogate markers to help us understand what is happening under the hood, for lack of a better term. So like other autoimmune hematologic conditions, the immune system has constant antigen stimulation. And so there's a ton of red blood cells floating around and stimulating these abnormally sensitized B cells to proliferate and make uh, more antibodies. And so it can take a while for treatments to have their effect, right? And so it's not unusual for patients to keep on having ongoing needs for transfusions for several weeks after starting therapy. So all this to say, don't get super nervous if you know they're still requiring transfusions two, three, four days into their treatment. The most important thing though is that you're seeing that the rate of their hemolysis is improving and supportive care is the name of the game at that point. And of course, treating the underlying problem, which we'll talk about in a second. Yeah, you know, I, I think the one of the other key points that you mentioned there is that you'll see things like reticulocyte count respond before the hemoglobin, and that's why it's important to monitor those, even in the outpatient setting when the patient's stabilized. And like you said, it takes a while. These are This isn't, you know, the pulse dose decks that we talked about with ITP. This is longer-term steroids with a slower taper. So I want to fast forward a little bit. In, in ITP, we talked about the use of IVIG for those patients as a way for a rescue measure. Dan, what are your thoughts on IVIG for hemolytic anemia? We don't use it often, and I want to uh, get your thoughts on what the cons are to this strategy. And let's go from there. Sure. You know, I'd say that although we, we did reference that it can take a while for patients to respond, if they still have a really intensive transfusion requirement, 10 14 days into treatment, that's when I'm starting to worry that, uh, you know, we, we'd hope to at least see something by this point. And if a patient still has a really high transfusion requirement, you can consider giving a little IVIG. Remember, this is an IgG-mediated process, so the idea is maybe IVIG can sort of disrupt some of the immune interactions going on causing the disease. In ITP, for example, we expect that IVIG can help increase the rate of response, make, make people respond more quickly to therapy. So I think of it more like a temporizing measure. In terms of some of the reasons I don't think of it as like a first-line intervention, like we do with severe ITP, remember that with really high doses of IVIG, we're worried a little bit about VTE risk. It, it can sort of be a little prothrombotic. And brisk hemolysis is already a really highly prothrombotic state. So you don't want to increase that risk any further if you don't have to. 
And for that same reason, I use a little different doses than I would in in ITP. If I am going to employ IVIG, I'll, I'll give it over a longer period of time at a lower dose. So something more like four or 500 milligrams per kilogram per day, given daily over four or five days. Beyond that, if a patient really seems like they're not responding the way you'd hope they would, there have been some studies looking at use of plasma exchange, therapeutic plasma exchange, and some meta-analyses that basically suggest that it does help people respond. And, and that makes sense, right? You're trying to flush out whatever autoantibody is in their bloodstream and replace their plasma with plasma that does not have autoantibodies against their own red cells. And the way I think about this, if you happen to be lucky enough to practice in a setting that um, has the ability to give plasma exchange by peripheral access, then maybe you can incorporate that into your treatment algorithm. I generally think it's it's hard to justify throwing in a central line, putting a patient through the risks associated with central line placement, given the number and sort of broad armamentarium of effective immunosuppressive therapies we have at our disposal, and just the lack of rigorous trials to show definitive benefit for, for incorporating plasma exchange therapy. You know, maybe we'll have more data to show that it's effective in the future. Maybe we'll have easier ways to do it. But for right now, it's not something that I really reach for all that frequently. I think that's critical to know that we're using things like these adjunctive IVIG therapies in very rare refractory cases. And you're not going to see this very often. You might be wondering, why are these patients at such high risk for thrombosis? It's because of one of the reasons is phosphatidylserine exposure. So that's on the inner layer of the red blood cell membrane. As they split open, you have more phosphatidylserine. That causes a lot of things, apoptosis, enzymatic interactions that end up leading to an increased risk of thrombosis at that site. So that's why we're seeing this increased risk of thrombosis. Always put them on DVT prophylaxis and you're putting them on high-dose steroids. That's also increasing your risk of thrombosis just a little bit, but it's still there. So now we have this patient, let's say they got a couple doses of rituxan in, they are doing much better, they're on their high-dose steroids, the hemoglobin stabilized, they're not needing transfusions daily, they're ready to go home. It's let's say we're now three weeks out. They've gotten their third dose of rituxan. They're in your clinic. Everything's getting better. Their reticulocyte count is decreasing. Their LDH and their bilirubin has normalized, and their hemoglobin's now up to let's say ten. How do you go about thinking of tapering their steroids? And let's let's finish the episode on that. Certainly, there is no certainly there is no exact prescription as to how to do this, right? But the name of the game is go slow and you're going to need to be on them for a long period of time. So, you know, we can reassure him that we're not going to plan on keeping him on lifelong steroids, but it'll still be a, it'll still be a while. So, because we're keeping him on high doses of steroids um, at a dose greater than 20 milligrams of prednisone equivalents daily, we need to taper these steroids off slowly, um, both to decrease the risk of quick relapse in this disease and also to minimize the risk of glucocorticoid withdrawal. So it is generally, I've seen my attendings do it, I now do this, generally counsel patients that while some folks will have sustained remission from disease after a single dose of treatment, some patients may see episodes of recurrence that may necessitate a return on steroids or an alternate treatment uh, option in the future. So in general, what I've always been taught to educate these patients about is that we keep the patient on their initial one mg per kg per day dose until they're no longer transfusion dependent. So that is the first goal that we're trying to achieve. 
when it's time to start tapering, we reduce their dose by about 10 milligrams each week. But the important thing though is that you're not doing this blindly. This patient will have to stop at the lab, get hemoglobin checks, check LDA, check all those hemolysis markers that we've been discussing to make sure that they don't have recurrence before we sort of de-escalate their doses. Because if there is ongoing hemolysis, that's your check-in to say, okay, either we're gonna extend at the current value of, of your steroids, the current dose of your steroid, or we may have to jump back up to the prior dose. Sometimes I get a little bit more worried about a patient. Let's say they are still aren't, they aren't requiring transfusions, but they seem to have settled out at their hemoglobin level and it's not quite back to their baseline. Let's say it's like settling out in the eight or nines. These are patients that maybe you want to be a little bit more conservative and say, instead of 10 a week, let's go down by five a week, you know, just giving them the benefit of the doubt. After a week at 20, we typically slow things down even further. So there, again, because 10, 20 to 10 is going to be a big drop. It's it is, I've seen a lot of my attendings and I've all started doing this tapering in smaller increments at this point. So taper by five every two weeks. And then after a couple of weeks on five, uh, after a couple of weeks, then you start tapering at two and a half milligrams per day for a couple of weeks, and then go down to one mg per day for two weeks before stopping altogether. So again, this is all sort of a little bit of the art of classical hematology, right? There is no quite guideline as to how to do this, but the most important thing that you need to remember, the name of the game is slow and steady, and you need to have these patients check their labs at least once a week, maybe more if, if their trajectory suggests that they need more checks. And then we sort of alluded to this already um, beforehand, but remember, these patients are on high doses of steroids. So PJP prophylaxis is definitely something that you wanna be thinking about. In many cases, we like to initiate patients on inhaled pantamidine even before they leave the hospital. And that way they don't have to think about this in, in the outpatient setting. Other things that you wanna think about also are acid-reducing medication, right, because of the increased risk of, of upper GI bleeds from high doses of steroids for extended periods of time, and bone health. So vitamin D and calcium supplementation can also be considered in these patients, especially if they're going to be in a long course of steroids. Yeah, I think, I think that's a critical thing. We got to watch these patients very closely. Once all of this treatment is done, Dan's plan for these patients, and I'm just going to give it to our listeners, is that he likes, and this is the Dan Housewrath approach, he likes to check in every three months for a year, then every six months for another year, then yearly after that. And that makes a whole lot of sense because, you know, these patients can relapse, and, and that's a really good way of thinking about this. And so for our patient, they got their rituximab, which is why we can also taper these steroids faster. You might hear some people say, keep them on a mig per kg of steroids for at least a month. Why we're saying you can start tapering when they're becoming transfusion independent is because you're adding the rituxan on. That's really important. That really helps a lot of these patients. We highly advocate for that approach. But let's say, Dan, that, that a, a patient relapses and, you know, you've given them steroids and rituxan. Let's say they relapse within that first year. And let's take CLL off the table because we could treat the CLL, but let's take CLL off the table. What are some other options for these patients other than a retrial of something like steroids and rituxan? What are you doing for them? It's a, it's a great question. And it's an important one because this does happen pretty frequently. Unfortunately, this condition tends to tends to come back. If that happens more than six months after they finish their taper, I'll just re-challenge them with steroids and rituximab. If it worked the first time, it's probably going to work again, and maybe we'll get a more sustained remission hitting them again with this therapy. But if it's sooner than that, I, I kind of think of that as a more refractory version of the disease. There are a lot of options in this space. None of them have 
quite the balance of minimal side effects and maximal efficacy that we get with steroids and Ritux, which is why I tend to think of them as later line options in general. And maybe someday we'll have uh, an episode in the distant future when we run out of stuff to talk about, about highly refractory warm autoimmune hemolytic But a lot of times what you'll see in, in refractory cases is a transition from B-cell targeted therapies to T-cell targeted therapies, something like mycophenolate or cyclosporin. And that can be something, especially in that primary refractory setting where you're really not getting much of a bang out of rituxan steroids or they're continuing to be transfusion dependent, uh, kind of transitioning from the steroids to mycophenolate, seeing if if that alternate axis of uh, lymphosuppression is, is going to be more effective. You may also see cyclophosphamide. Cyclophosphamide can have a really quick response compared to some of the other therapies, but it just has a lot more toxicities. Patients tolerate it much, much less well than they do rituxan steroids. There are even some newer approaches looking at drugs like bortezomib. I mean, think about how effective this is killing plasma cells in myeloma and gumming up the internal machinery of these antibody-producing cells. And some uh, other medications like fostamatinib that we use in, in ITP. So a lot, of, a lot of options out there. At certain points, it's kind of dealer's choice, but that's, that's generally how I think about it. If they're primary refractory, thinking about cyclosporin or, or mycophenolate, if it's early relapse, maybe try cyclophosphamide. And if it's kind of multiply relapsed, thinking about things like bortezomib or fostamatinib. If a patient's persistently refractory to multiple lines of medical therapy, splenectomy is, is something that's out there. It's, it's on the table. It's not a decision that I make lightly, just like we were talking about in the congenital episode. Not only is it an invasive procedure, but you are putting a patient into a lifelong immunocompromised state. And it may not even have a durable effect, uh, if there, especially if there's splenules present that could hypertrophy. And eventually, the reticuloendothelial system bulks back up. The liver takes over the role that the spleen once had. So it's just something that like, you really got to exhaust all other options. Uh, it, and you really have to be thinking, okay, is this going to improve the patient's quality of life substantially? And if so, and then that is something you can think about too. Yeah, I, I think that's huge. And and just for our listeners to know, you, you might need to do these things and there's not good data, right? It's it's hard to do randomized trials in this space. So there's not a lot of great data in this setting. So it's really provider dependent. Ask ask your colleagues, uh, you know, it's all this is a multidisciplinary team here where you have your pharmacist that you can go to and kind of just say, "Hey, can you help me figure out how to dose this?" You know, what what do you what are your thoughts on this? And all of those are critically important to do. So a recap for today, when you're thinking about a warm autoimmune hemolytic anemia, any anemia, make sure they're not bleeding first, right? Bleeding is the most common cause of anemia, right? We also think about the regular nutritional deficiencies and things like that. Once you've confirmed this diagnosis of warm autoimmune hemolytic anemia, DAT positive, LDH elevated, retic elevated, bile elevated, haptoglobin undetectable, when you have this diagnosis and your elution screen's positive, you don't need to transfuse this patient unless they're symptomatic and you choose the least incompatible blood, which, you know, you work with your blood bank. Remember, these are antibodies that are to common red blood cell antigens, regardless of, of the regular ABO blood type that we think about. So it's hard to find a completely compatible unit. But like Dan said, these you're, it's not even compatible with the patient's own blood. So you got to give them something if they're symptomatic to prevent something like an MI Put them on high doses of steroids, one mg per kg, rituximab therapy. That's the mainstay in these patients. They're on steroids for quite some time. So if they get admitted and you're a hospitalist, don't just stop the steroids. Talk to the hematologist. Keep it going. This is a slow taper. 
Remember the risk of DVT while they're inpatient. Put them on DVT prophylaxis. They're not bleeding. Put them on DVT prophylaxis. Super important. And, you know, I think that's a good recap for what we got now. Dan, Roenick, do you have any other words of wisdom before we close out the show today? No, other than just supportive care in the beginning is huge and give blood if they need it. That is that is so critically important. Yeah, you know, we're always taught to worry about blood loss that you can't compress, like non-compressible blood loss. But hemolytic anemia, that's blood loss that you can't put a stitch in, that you can't hold pressure on. So it's a, it's a really worrisome condition and it needs emergency management. All right. I thought that was a great discussion, great episode for today. We'll wrap up our hemolytic anemia series next week with clotal gluten and disease. See you later. See you later. Peace.